So B.B. King, remember the great jazz guitarist and singer, he's actually a blues singer, recently died. And he is the most recent celebrity to die and leave his wealth to his family, and they're all fighting over it, right? And that's what happens. And truthfully, I think B.B. King really only had one woman in his life, and that was Lucille, which was the name of his guitar. Um, but as the old adage goes, you can't take it with you, and Lucille has been left behind, and everybody's fighting over her. That's a lot how life goes, right? You, know, you save up all this money, and then everybody fights over it. You can't, you can't take it with you. And that very topic surfaces in the midst of the passages that we're looking at in Luke. We've been looking at Luke, and we've been looking at what happens with Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders when Jesus draws a line in the sand. And that's our series that we're in, the line in the sand sermon series. And Jesus draws a line in the sand and he basically calls these guys out and he exposes them for their hypocrisy. And we know that they are now planning to do him harm. And he knows that and everybody else knows that. And how he responds is surprising. Last week he responds by standing up in front of everybody and saying, the only person to fear is God, essentially. And then after he says that, this guy cries out in verse 13 of chapter 12 in Luke, and he cries out and he says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It sounds like something maybe somebody would say today. And Jesus sort of dismisses it, and he says, what you guys really need to do is beware of greed and realize that a person's value isn't based on the abundance of their possessions. And this is kind of a jab at the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders too because they taught that God, you know, the people that are rich are the people that God really honors. And he says that's not what it's all about. And that moves him to give a little story, a a parable. And he talks about this farmer who had all this money that he made, all this produce in his case that he had that would give him a lot of money and make him a very wealthy man. And he's doing very well. And that night he said to himself, you know what, instead of giving this to other people, I'm going to hoard it all to myself. And I'm going to tear down the barns I have. I'm going to build bigger barns. But that night, the Lord required his life from him. And just like the celebrities that we have today, he didn't get any of it. He couldn't take it with him. And it was all left behind. And what Jesus is essentially saying is that uh, those people who live for their possessions will lose their possessions in the end. And he has an interesting statement in Luke chapter 12, verse 21, as he sort of summarizes this parable. And he says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. And the key is, instead of storing things up for ourselves, we should be rich toward God. And he goes on in verses 22 through 34 to talk about what rich toward God is. And so we're going to talk about what that means today. But to do that, I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to read it right through so we don't lose the flow. And then we'll go back and we'll break it up and discuss it. All right, you ready? Let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? 
Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and all these things will be given you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. that powerful stuff? I mean, that's, that's vintage Jesus. So he's talking here about probably, I, I think primarily, he's describing what it means to be rich toward God. How can we be rich toward God? The first thing he says in verses 22 through 30, this is where he spends most of his time, is he says that we are not to worry about our possessions. Do not worry about your possessions. If you want to be rich toward God, you need to stop by worrying about being rich toward yourself here on planet Earth. And, you know, if, there's, if anybody needs some seats, there's some seats in this section, and there's some in the back here as we see some people coming in. Good. Good to see you, folks. Nice to have you here. <laughs> so as we, as we pick up there, so he's looking at this, and he's speaking to his disciples, who are his followers, who are his followers today? We are, right? So we're the followers today. So when he's speaking to his followers, he's speaking to followers for all of posterity. As much as it relates in context, sometimes it's not in context, but for the most part, he's speaking to us. And he says, therefore, which ties it into that last parable that we talked about. So you don't store up your treasures here. You store up your treasures in heaven. How do we do that? We start by getting rid of our possessions, so to speak, not worrying about our possessions, not making that a concern of our lives. And he gives us five examples of why, or five reasons why we should not worry about our possessions. In understanding that, though, we need to understand a key word. What word is it? Worry, right? Yeah. You know, what, what does he mean by worry? The Greek word for worry is used, often translated as anxious, but literally it means distraction. Not being distracted by things that are generally self-centered and counterproductive. It's kind of a negative word, and that's why most people are not worried anymore, but they are concerned. Right? I mean, most, we're talking about what we're, so let's just say we're talking about what we're concerned about today, all right? Um, five reasons we shouldn't be concerned about things. The first one is that God cares about life in verses 22 through 20, um, 23. God cares about your life. Why? He's the creator. The creator naturally cares for his creation. At the beginning of the Bible, in the first chapters of Genesis, it tells us that what God made, he thought it was good. He's very fond of it. That's why he's kept it these thousands and thousands of years. That's why if you look at your life, he's taken care of you in the time up till now. It's unlikely that anybody in this room has really truly faced starvation or nakedness. He's taken care of you up till now. He's taken care of creation up till now. So why do we worry so much about it? 
The second reason why is because God cares for the ravens in verse 24. Ravens are probably a variety of the crow, and the crow is not a very well-liked creature. In fact, in Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus chapter 11, verses 13 through uh, 20, it says that they were considered unclean by the Jewish people. And throughout antiquity in the ancient world, people didn't like the crow so much. So this is a creature that's not really that popular, and yet it says that God takes care of the creature. In fact, you never have seen a crow working in a victory garden, have you? With overalls and a hoe. You don't see them doing that. They sleep, and when they wake up, the early ones are the first to get the worms, right? God has worms available for them. They have to work. They can't be idle, but God takes care of them. So why do we worry so much? Why do we work so much? And why do we sweat and get so concerned about everything? God will take care of us. We need to work hard, but we don't need to fall apart over it. God will take care of us. The third reason that he gives is that God controls our length of life in verses 25 through 26. Now, this one is a little bit tricky. It's a tricky translation because the word, it, it could be translated as it is here. It could be translated that we, by worrying we cannot add an hour to our life, but it could also be translated by worrying we cannot add a cubit to our height. Because this word in Greek could be either for age or for height. But it doesn't really matter because now it gives us two good illustrations. They both fit. If you worry about how old you're going to get, is that going to get you older? It's not going to help at all. In fact, Science would say that it would actually affect your health and you might live a shorter life. So you can't, can't do that. It just, why do you worry about how old you're going to get? Worry about how super healthy you're going to be. When it's your time to go, it's your time to go. You can only do so much. And how about your height? Now, Mitch is somewhere perking up on this one. It doesn't really matter. Because there's not much you can do to get yourself taller. And a cubit is 18 inches. And how many people would really want to add 18 inches to their height? Okay, so the point is, is that why worry about it? Why be concerned about these things? What's going to happen is going to happen. You, you can't control it. A lot of this is genetics and circumstances. So enjoy your life. Take care of yourself. Work hard. Have fun. Don't sweat it. And then he gives a, a, fourth, a third one here, which is God cares about the lilies in verses 27 through 28. And he probably has in mind the beautiful wildflowers that adorned uh, Galilee. And we see wildflowers around here too. Who waters them? Who cares for them? I mean, yeah, God's taking care of them. We don't really do anything. And they grow vigorously and they're absolutely beautiful. And you, you actually can't, weave them together. You ever think about that? Because if you try to weave flowers together, what happens? They all rip apart. So weavers throughout the centuries have been trying to figure out how they can duplicate this beauty. In those days, the greatest king they'd had, the wealthiest king, was Solomon. And so he gives Solomon as an example. Solomon's weavers, they had all the money and all the resources, and they still couldn't du duplicate this beauty. We still can't even to this day with modern technology. And yet, these beautiful wildflowers die overnight. They have very short lifespans. And their, their, dry, their, their dry stems become uh, good for people to start fires with. 
And they used to have clay ovens all over in those days and they would put them in the ovens and start fires. And there they are, they're all gone. And yet God makes them so beautiful. If God takes care of them, why wouldn't he take care of you? In fact, as far as we've gone so far, in the face of, of what we already have talked about and the facts we've already talked about, how could we even doubt that God takes care of us? What it gets down to, he says here, is that you should believe, you should put your trust in God. It's a question of are we really trusting in God or not? And that's the real key. Before he gives the last one, he changes the word for worry. And the word that he uses for worry is now sort of elevated. Literally, it means puffed up or suspended. And it came to mean getting worked up over something. You know, when you get worked up and you have these mood swings and you go up and down and you're anxious and having trouble breathing maybe and you're just, oh, you're frantic. He says, if you're, if you're not dealing with it up to this point, you're probably getting to a point of being frantic as I'm talking. And he says, why? He says, have you ever noticed that God even takes care of, he even takes care of the other nations in the next two verses. He takes care of the nations in, um, what verses are those? Verses 29 through 30. The word for nations is ethne, from which we get ethnicity. And the word can also be used for the Gentiles or the non-Jews. But in this case, as he points out the whole world or cosmos, he's basically saying he takes care of everybody, everywhere. He takes care of those people that don't believe in God. Have you ever thought about that? As believers in God, we're his children. He takes care of those who aren't his children. Why wouldn't he take care of us who are his children? Not only that, but he goes further to say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 45, he says he also takes care of those who are evil. God takes care of evil people. He gives them rain. He gives them sun. It's amazing how long-suffering and sensitive God is. And then once something goes wrong in somebody's life, they say, see how horrible your God is? How could you trust in such a God? And yet 98% of the time, he has taken care of everything that person has ever needed. And they've never given him a word of thanks. God takes care of us. So we shouldn't worry so much, but we need to place our trust in him. And that becomes kind of the natural transition here is that instead of being so worried about our world and our possessions, we should get our eyes on his world and we should put our possessions there. We need to focus on him. And so that's the next thing he says. What we should do if we really want to, to have be rich toward God is we need to start by seeking his kingdom. In verses 31 through 32, Seek God's kingdom. And that's the most important thing that we can do. Have you ever noticed that there are two worlds that run parallel on this planet? And one is a physical world that you see with your eyes and it's very tangible. And it's the world that we typically think of ourselves as living in. But all around us there is yet another world. And that world we sometimes see, but we usually just see it in a glimpse. It's a world that's not as tangible and it's a world that's spiritual, but it's a world that's more important in the end. And it's a world that's eternal. And we need to live for that world. And God says if we live for that world that is his kingdom, that he is going to take care of our needs. And he does. And we could probably spend another hour in this room if everybody would share 
the ways that God in different ways has taken care of you through the years and taken care of your physical needs. I know when Carrie and I were first married, we went up to uh, Portland, Oregon, where I was going to graduate school or seminary to prepare to be a minister, and we didn't have any money. And we had some jobs lined up, but it was hard to get jobs because they had a recession going on. And so we were trying to put everything together. We had hawked all of our presents. You know, we had our extra presents. We, you know, we returned them, got money for them. We took all the money we had given to us for our, our wedding, and we were just, we were out of money. And we were trying to get a job, trying to get something going, trying to go to school. And we told our friends, a couple friends and our, and our parents, we said, could you pray for us because we, we need some money to make, make ends meet this week. And we needed $1,000. We never told anybody. And that week, in the mail, we got $1,000 from Carrie's grandparents. And nobody had ever told them. That kind of stuff has happened to me all my life in my relationship with God. And it's probably happened with you in different ways too. It's amazing how God provides. He just does. And people say, well, what if somebody kills you? Well, then based on last week's passage, they've killed your body, but your soul will soar to heaven and you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness to him. So you really can't lose. If you're in a relationship with him, if you are seeking his kingdom, and that's the starting point is have you come into his kingdom? Are you in relationship with him? How do you do that? A, you admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. B, you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. Um, and he did that on your behalf. He died for you. And C, you choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And if you do that, Again, as we always say, come and talk to us about that. That's the most incredible decision that you could ever make. Now you're, you're in and you're seeking the kingdom and you're part of the kingdom. And he goes on to tell us some other things that he does when we get to that place. The next thing he says is really kind of cool. He calls us, Jesus calls us his little flock, which is language that he uses in the Old Testament. And little flock means little sheep and sheep are fragile. Little sheep, they can't take care of themselves. They need a compassionate, caring uh, shepherd to take care of them. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm that shepherd. I'll take care of you. No matter how much you hurt, I'm there to take care of you. So he says, don't, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. Now that would be enough, really. But he doesn't stop there. He says, my father is so pleased with you and he loves you so much that he's already given you the kingdom. If we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are already part of the kingdom. You know, the word for heaven, Uranus, means somewhere out there, essentially. And when we look at the universe and how vast it is, we, it, it just blows our mind. I'm one who believes that heaven is really another dimension, a matrix, if you will, that we don't see. That's all around us, even now. God is with us and his kingdom is here for those that are in relationship with him. And the benefits of that kingdom, when you start to think about it, are overwhelming. Now this last week, I think 50 guys were interviewed um, to see if they were going to be Republican candidates for the presidency. Were there 50 of them? Or maybe I'm over-exaggerating. Maybe there's 49. Um, and they're trying to determine who the next person is to even run for the president. In heaven, they don't have elections because they have the perfect king and he lives forever and he never makes a mistake. 
right? And if on earth I want to talk to the president and I want to go and knock on the door to the White House, I could get in trouble. Now, I could wait until they were at a party getting drunk, the Secret Service men, like they were recently, and I could charge on in, but they would probably eventually catch me, and if there weren't any surveillance cameras around, they'd probably breathe my brains in. So, you know, it's not, not a good situation, right? But if I want to talk to God, the king of his kingdom, the kingdom of God, I can talk to him any time I want. He's made himself accessible to me. In this world, we're constantly trying to reinterpret the Constitution, but God has given us a Bible that we have all this paperwork. You know this on our planet, I mean, in our world? I mean, everything gets so complicated, and yet the Bible kind of over, you know, gives us guidance for everything we need to know, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us besides with the Bible. And he gives us people that are family to connect with us and to help us in this life and the opportunity to tell others that they might come in as well. His kingdom is a wonderful thing. We don't need to worry so much. We need to get our minds on his kingdom. And then what we need to do if we really want to be rich toward God is not just get to know him and be part of his kingdom, but finally invest in his kingdom. And he says that at the end here in verses 33 through 34 that we are to invest in his kingdom. Have you ever made a bad investment? I have. We lost our shirts on one once during the you know, Great Recession. There's no foolproof investment that you can make on planet Earth. But if you invest in God's kingdom, that's where you want to invest. Because that's where he takes care of us. It's really cool. He says if you invest in his kingdom, he will, he will expand it and expand it. He's talking about your purse here, but your purse could also be your money box or wherever you would put your money. And what he's saying is it'll get bigger and bigger and nobody can touch it. Moths can't eat it. And it's not like the trophies that rust away because it's in heaven. It's taken care of for eternity. How do you put an investment there? This is where it gets a little bit sticky. It's counterintuitive. The way you put, the way you invest into heaven is you take the money you have on earth and you give it to those people that have greater needs than yourself. And that's how you invest in heaven. That's what he's asking them to do. In fact, he's pretty extreme here. He says, take all that you have, all your money and possessions, and give it away. And then, after he says that, uh, he says, God's going to reward you. And he concludes with this really pithy statement. I just love this statement. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Have you ever thought about that? If I looked at your budget, you know, if I looked at your, you know, where your money goes, would it tell me that you invest more in yourself in this planet or would it tell me that you invest more in God and his planet? I could figure out pretty quickly what kind of woman you are, what kind of man you are, by what you spend your money on. Tells us right then and there. There is a little bit of a problem with this part, though, of the passage. And you may have picked up on it. If, for example, everybody in this room gave all their money away, we would have trouble functioning as a church. 
we wouldn't be able to pay the bills here. You know, we would, we would lose everything. Everything would fall apart. We'd all be poor. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Furthermore, there were people like Peter who had a big house, apparently, where they would meet all of the time. Or like Lazarus and Mary and Martha, where they had big houses where they would meet. What, what would happen to those kinds of things? And, and what about the people who financed the, the church and were so often talked about as wonderful people, wealthy people like Lydia and Zacchaeus and, um, and Nicodemus and maybe even Theophilus, whom Luke was writing to? So what gives here? Other places in the Bible we could add, it doesn't add up. Money doesn't seem to always be a bad thing. So is there some kind of confusion? I think the answer is found in the context. Within the context, remember what he's saying is, don't hoard money for yourself, but give your money away. Perhaps, and it's funny, the more I've thought about this, I think really within the context, what he's basically saying is, when you die, people shouldn't be fighting over what you've left over. By the time you're, you exit this planet, if you live a long life, you should have given most of it away. And if there's anything left, it should already be designated. So there's no need to fight over it. Because you need to be generous with it. The basic principle is you need to be willing to give as much away as God would call you to. And the things that you have should be used for him. If you go, another great follow-up passage that you might read later is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, that talks about this too. That's where um, Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, don't misunderstand. He does not say it is the cause of all kinds of evil. It isn't the root of evil. It is a root. Here's the deal with money. Money is amoral. It's neither bad nor is it good. It all depends on what you do with it. It's not wrong to invest. It's not wrong to make money. Certainly, it's not wrong to take care of one another, you know, take care of yourself. It is wrong to spend the vast majority of it on yourself exclusively and not take care of those that are needed around you. There's a second thing in context, and that is that the 12 disciples are the primary people he's talking to. There's probably 72 disciples as well around, but he's primarily talking to the 12. And what's going to happen after he dies and resurrects? What happens to them? Their job is to take this message to the four corners of the world. And that means that these guys have to be sacrificial. They're going to basically take a voluntary oath of poverty to do that. And there are people that do that today because that's the calling God has given them. Not everybody can do that. People have to stay behind to finance them. But there are people that go overseas as missionaries. And those of us that are behind, part of our job is to financially support them so they can do their job. But they're never going to have very much because of what they're doing. Some do it for short seasons. Some do it for a long time. Sometimes even like in starting this church, we had to think about it that we were going to take a loss financially for a season that's going to happen. That's okay because that's what God has called us to. There will be seasons in your life when God calls you and you have to say, God wants me to do this and I'm going to do it. It's not all about money. It's about doing what God wants you to do. Sometimes we may not like what God's calling us to do, but we need to do what he's calling us to do and that's different for each person. And then finally, I have a question for you and it's this. Are there any other ways to invest in God's kingdom other than finances? Ever think about that? I think there are. 
Um, we could say that where your treasure is, there's, where there's your heart is at. And I think sometimes our treasures are in people. We invest in people. But that's in keeping with the great commandment. When we say our love for God leads us to, to love our world, we're not making that up. We actually get it from the great commandment found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, that says that we should, the, the great commandment is that we should love God and love others. Now here's a problem. It sounds like two, right? Love God, love others sounds like two commandments. But really it's one because if we truly love God, we will be compelled to love others. We can't help ourselves but do that. And so the two come as one. Anytime we love other people, we're showing our love for God. And Jesus says, for example, in, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about when you love your brothers and sisters in Christ and take care of their needs, when they're hungry, when they're thirsty, when they're in prison, when they need support and encouragement of any kind, you are showing your love for me. And we'll be rewarded for those things. So it's beyond just what we do financially. Uh, it's any kind act that we do to help care for other people. Now, let's make some applications to this. The first application that I want to take a look at today is what do we do with worry and anxiety? I'll tell you, I'm going to admit right now, I'm a worrier, okay? I don't worry that much about money and possessions for the most part because I've delegated that to my wife. So she, she has the background in that, and so she takes care of that. That helps me a lot. I don't, I don't, that's one thing that works. You know? It's usually the person who's taking care of it has the, the issues. Um, so that helps some. But, I mean, I still do. You know, I mean, we still have to talk about those things and look at them. And, yeah, I, I worry about things I have to do around the house. I worry about uh, people. I worry about you guys. I worry about the church. I worry about, you know, that's my natural tendency. When I was younger, I used to spend nights up. I couldn't get to sleep. And through, though I've, as I've grown in my relationship with the Lord, um, I find I don't have that problem as much anymore, though I still struggle uh, on and off. It's just a natural tendency for me. But I'll tell you what's helped me the most is Philippians. I look at this often, especially when I start to feel stressed. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. It starts off, in Philippians 4, verse 6, it says... Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting because in chapter 2, verse 28 of Philippians, just a couple chapters earlier, Paul says, I am anxious about the state of the church. So let's understand this within, again, in context. It doesn't mean that th there's going to be times when we feel anxious and worried, and, and it's natural. When we see, especially a brother and sister suffering spiritually, or we see somebody dying, or somebody dies and they're suffering, that should cause some anxiety. Uh, we see struggles within the church, that should cause some anxiety. You know, the, things like that should bother us. But what he's saying is, is that we shouldn't just leave it there. When it bothers us, we should take it to who? Take it to him. Take those concerns to him. I've made it a practice of mine. I think it's helped me a lot in this area. Is every day I do this. Every day I take all my concerns and I tell them to God. I just lay them at his feet. And throughout the day when they come up, I give them back. I just keep giving them to him. Because he can take care of them. I can't. And to the degree I remember to give it to him, I find I have a lot of peace hardly understand it sometimes, but I just do. It, it, it's amazing that it can be that simple in a sense, but it is. Sometimes I have to all day long keep giving it back, you know. 
But it's amazing the peace that he gives when we do that. And I thank him. I thank him in advance for what he's going to do. And sometimes it doesn't work out the way I want. Sometimes tragedy occurs. But I thank him because he's in control. I'm not. I take the pressure off of me. It's not about what I can do because I can't. I'm limited. So he takes care of it, not me. And that helps a lot. The other thing that helps is the last part of this where he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and God, the God of peace will be with you. I've tried, when I was a younger man, tried the positive thinking. Anybody ever tried the positive thinking thing? It doesn't work for me. Because eventually I get negative. You know, I mean, I have positive and negative side to me. And sometimes, it, it, you know, I get, and it's, like, it's almost like you've got to fake it. You know, I've got to fake it. I gotta, I'm happy. You know, I, I can't do that after a while. I mean, that's exhausting. It just wears you out. It's just this self-effort of trying to make yourself something that you're not. It's like you're a play actor all the time. So what helps me is being able to identify the positive things that I already see going on around me. The things we talked about earlier. When I start thinking about how much God loves creation, when I start thinking about how he takes care of the birds, when I start thinking about how he takes care of the flowers, when I start thinking about how he's in control of how long I'm going to live or how tall I'm going to be, when I start looking at the beautiful scenery around Stanislaus County, then you know what happens? I change. When I start thinking about people even, like Paul, and I think about what he did, and, and famous great people, and, and how they sacrificed for God, and what wonderful people they were, and people in my life, and character qualities I see in people. You know what I'm doing? I'm getting my eyes off of who? See, positive thinking keeps my eyes on me. But when you think this way, it gets your eyes on God and the good things he's doing all around you. And boy, I tell you, that, that helps me. I'll tell you now the people this isn't going to work for. I guarantee you this will not work for somebody who's not walking with God. If you have sin in your life that you haven't repented, this will only make you feel worse. You've got to get that right with him first because that's the real problem, your anxiety. Your anxiety isn't, you're not really worried. What you're worried about, if anything, is you feeling guilty. So you need to get that off your chest and you need to deal with that with God, do business with him. Also, there are times when you're doing all this stuff and you may not even be an anxious person normally, but you're feeling anxious all the time and you can't seem to control it. And you may even have dark thoughts in your mind. You know what? It may be a chemical imbalance. You may have another problem. And so be honest with yourself and seek help. Uh, come and talk to me. Come and talk to the other guys. And we have networks and people that we can help you work through that situation. So please come and check with us. All right? Now, that gives you a lot of it, but the next thing is, you know, enjoy your benefits as a member of the kingdom. Well, we talked about that. Pray, read your Bibles, get involved in church and um, things. You know, just do what you're supposed to do. Tell other people about your relationship with him, the people he's placed in your life. Invite them to church. Be kind to them. Be aware more of the Holy Spirit in your life. Be aware more of the angels that are protecting you are all around you. Because if you're really paying attention, you'll be surprised how often you get glimpses of the other kingdom. 
Finally, give generously. Where do you start? Well, Bible's pretty clear. You start with tithes and offerings. The Old Testament is full of it. A tithe is 10% of the income that you make. That money that you have, 10% goes to the temple. Problem is, don't have a temple anymore. So the money goes to the church. Now, technically, Jesus doesn't talk about this, so we could argue that he doesn't say we have to give a tithe, but he says we're supposed to be extremely generous. And so the basic idea is 10% would be a goal to shoot for. If you get beyond, get beyond it. It's not bragging rights or anything. It's just what we do. I mean, you come to church. You give a tithe. You get into a small group. You pray. You just That's what you do. Um, and it's an indication of where your heart is at. Are you willing to trust him with that much money or not? And, and when you give to the church, by the way, the idea is not just to financially support us, but it brings resources for all the things that we do here. And it also... We work and network, and, and so we can get that money to people needs, like we have in certain crises. We've given it to agencies that have been able to help people. We have missionaries in Berlin and another one who works in, um, and, and, uh, in countries where you can't get into, um, least access countries. And so we can help in those areas. We give money to the family network, um, family support network uh, in town to help people that are, have financial problems. So we'll help in those kind of areas as well. So that's one thing. But if you can give beyond that, here's the deal, is even give more beyond that. I mean, don't we love it when people are generous? God was generous. He gave his only son. He asked us to be generous. So give more if you can, depending on how God has blessed you. There may be a neighbor that can't pay their bills. Uh, an older lady who maybe is by herself and can't pay her bills. There may be a young couple across the street that doesn't have any money to go out on a date. Uh, there may be someone who's lost their job. And you can think about who you can give to. And those are the people in your community that God has placed in your life. It's a way to minister to them. It's not always just telling them about God. It's taking care of their needs and helping them. Be careful who you give to, though. Because you know what? There's a lot of swindlers out there. So before you give, make sure you really know the person in the situation. And I would also say come to us if you want to give to an organization. And we can help direct you. Uh, to one that might be a, a good one for you to give to. Now, we've talked about a lot of this stuff, and when we began, I began with an adage, right? And I said, you can't take it with you. I want to try to summarize all this as succinctly as I can today by adding to that adage. I'm going to put it this way. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And that's what we've talked about today. I hope that's what you're doing, or that that's what you will be doing. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that there's nothing we really have to worry about when we know you. Um, we can trust you to take care of our needs, and we don't even have to worry about our money and our finances. Um, I pray that as a result, we would seek you more, get closer to you, have peace in you, and not worry about it, but uh, actually be generous in giving um, to the church and to other people uh, around us, and that you would use that to help uh, strengthen your kingdom and help more people come into relationship with you and just take care of people as you love to do. Thank you that you're such a generous, loving, and caring God. And to pray that we would be more like that ourselves as we grow closer to you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Can we please stand and sing with us again?